Hey there, and welcome to What Happens Next with Ben and Philip. I am Ben, and this is Philip. Mate, how are you tonight? Oh, mate, I'm pretty good, actually. Yeah, I've had a good week. What are you about yourself? It's pretty good, pretty good. I've been listening to lots of podcasts, and that's the topic for discussion tonight. Oh, podcasts such as this or yeah, just like this aren't quite as good as this one? Ones that are more successful and can actually attract sponsors advertising. Oh, we don't have sponsors? <laughs> how are you paying for my appearance for every week? No, we're not sponsored by, um, what's that condom brand? Durex. Durex. We don't have Durex rib for their pleasure as our sponsor tonight. Not yet anyway. Although surely with this plug. The night is young. <laughs> sure, there's lots of marketing reps listening in. Surely they'll sign up as we get our listenership into the three figures. <laughs> but what I wanted to talk to you about tonight was advertising. And let's just call it, okay, we can call it try-hard advertising or this new trend of doco-style advertising, which I'm going to call right now on the spot docvertising. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Are you familiar with docvertising? Yes, only in a limited way though, and recently I, I would imagine. Maybe I've actually seen them and I haven't actually appreciated them for what they are. So I know docvertising as the sort of advertising you hear on a podcast. There's a particular company called Gimlet Media, that started this podcast series called Startup about the establishment of their podcast company uh, by this really entertaining podcast producer slash host named Alex Blumberg, I think his name is. And they started this form of advertising where rather than just cut to a John Laws radio style ad, mm. either read by him or just playing essentially what would be the equivalent of the audio from a TV commercial, Yeah, it's like a mini doco where – Basically, imagine an audio doco for a company where they'll go inside a large company like Accenture, their regular sponsor, and basically they'll talk about how Accenture's been really innovative with their employees in relation to hot desking or using recyclable coffee cups or something like that. Yeah. And they're not really advertising the benefits of hot desking or using recyclable materials. They're more just indirectly saying, wow, Accenture's a really cool company to work for and they're really progressive and they'd be really good to either work for or to hire as consultants. Yeah. And they just play it like basically a mini documentary. And at the very, very end, the host might say, so if you're looking for a consultant or you're looking for somewhere innovative to work, work. Check them out. Check them out. Yeah. Now, I must say, I actually don't mind that. I'm someone who really doesn't like advertising at all, and I will always be the person that pays a membership like, I'll pay for uh, Spotify. I'll pay a Spotify subscription to avoid commercials. Yeah, I'll pay my problems away. I pay YouTube right now. I pay for YouTube Premium, which is about $13 per month to avoid advertising because yeah. advertising just annoys me. Yeah, I just feel like it's a thief of time and I want to get rid of it. And so with these types of inbuilt ads you can't fast forward through them that easily sometimes if you're running it's a juggle to find your phone yeah so you're kind of a captive audience yeah a bit like radio yeah but i don't mind it actually it's better than radio because you can fast forward but when it's like an entertaining doco i've got to say as a massive skeptic of advertising i can actually listen to these and be yeah a little bit entertained but the question is Mm. is that ingenious advertising or disingenuous yeah, is it deliberately inoffensive so that it's sort of you are less tempted to skip ahead or turn it off? Is it more insidious than than the sort of gratuitous, loud 
10 octaves higher than the actual radio show you're listening to advertisement with the wacky voiceover guy, which just shits you to tears. Is it a um, much more insidious kind of invasive way of doing it? I don't know. I agree. I would be less inclined to skip ahead if it was a an even-toned person narrating a story about a company and what how they're being innovative or something as opposed to, well, hey, let me talk about these great rates you can get at Gate Girl or something, you know, those kind of ads just shit me. Well, if you think about how fast things move like car manufacturing, design or clothes, fashions, whatever, it's like radio advertising – didn't really evolve. It was yeah. still that old school, hey there, how you doing? With yeah. wacky voices to the point yeah. that there's like parodies of parodies of parodies. Jingles. Of jingles or shock jocks or yeah. too cool for school radio announcers or commercials. Yeah. And I think this podcasting advertising actually is doing something a little bit different, which is to be commended. And I've got to say, I do feel deep down inside I should be offended that I'm actually being entertained by what is actually an advertisement. But truth be told, I think it's probably, at the end of the day, I rule it as it's a, a le- smart call. And it's the lesser of two evils, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. I yeah. mean, you're getting your content. You don't have to pay for it. So if you've got to sit through an ad, you might as well sit through one that doesn't jar your ears on the walk to work so much so that you have to like quickly fast forward it and you're happy just to tune out so long in the background and you'll tune back in when the announcer comes back on or – like you say, you'll be like, oh, this is semi-interesting. I'll listen to this and see what they have to say. And you are probably unlikely, you would think, to come away with a positive impression of the company that they're talking about, but maybe you would. So what happens Sub- next? Con- subconsciously <laughs> hire some consultants from that company <laughs> to uh, come and halve your workforce or th- than some consultants from another company. Or throw in your day job and go and work as an yeah. internal graduate. Again. In your 40s. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Restart your career. Remember me? Long service leaves. Does it restart? I've only, got, I've only got nine years to go now. I've already done my one-year graduate program. So what happens next? If you're an advertiser now or you've got a product to advertise, is this type of marketing the future of advertising where you're telling it as indirectly a form of entertainment that isn't as overt, which might mean the message is lost as to what you're selling, but the benefit is – Exactly that. It's not as avert, which means you won't deter potential listeners and potential customers. Yeah, I think it's sort of getting back to some of those ad campaigns. You, we used to, this is starting to sound like an episode of Gruen, but that we used to see in the past where the advertisers tell a story and you're sort of you're engaged in the story, not so much the product. And the product is more of an afterthought. For example, what springs to mind for me is the old Nescafe ads about woman and the man in the valley. Do you remember those ones? I can't recall those, but they sound exactly the same as the woman and the man in the valley following the ball of string all the way through Melbourne and they discover yeah. Victoria. The Nescafe ones in the valley go back probably to the early 90s maybe. And, yeah, you were watching it like you are watching a little miniseries, some Australian little miniseries, like a country practice style. I know that wasn't a miniseries, but do you know what I mean? So this was your 1990s uh, era of Sundance independent film. These were your little short grabs that complemented your Spike Jones, yeah. P.T. Anderson and Quentin Tarantino. Yes, in a way. Probably less less Tarantino and less Spike Jones, more P.T., I'd say. At the end of each one, there would be someone would be having a Nescafe blend 43. But that wasn't the point. And then there'd be another one and then – 
they would run one ad for a month and then they'd run the sort of sequel ad for another month and you'd sort of see the relationship between this couple in the valley develop. And so you kind of weren't you weren't sort of going, oh, another ad. You'd be like, oh, it's that story about those people. I wonder what they're up to now. Is it have they sort of evolved? Are they now oh they're now buying they're now leaving together? Oh, okay. Oh, and they're having a coffee. And whereas these sort of subliminal style podcast ads sort of gently evade into your oral sphere when you got your headphones on walking to work. They're sort of that, I think they're that kind of inoffensive, slightly interesting, you can drift along with it if you want or you can just tune out and wait for the show to kick back in or, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know what, as you raise that anecdote about that 1990s Nescafe one, it reminds me of the same idea behind, I think it was the character of Rhonda who was going to Bali yes. and I think it was advertising insurance. That's the sort of more modern day, same idea, but that's probably a little bit more in your face, whereas this one was a little bit more arty. I think they have talked about that one on Gruen and it's being that style of advertisement. You sort of buy into the story and then you, the character has a life of its own and for some reason you're really rooting for this character in an ad, which is really weird when you think about it. Yeah, as you tell that story, it makes me realise that what I'm describing with Docker advertising, Docvertising, trademark, Ben Phelps, is that it's same but different. I thought initially it was much more innovative, but what it actually is is a doco-style version of exactly what you're describing, which is a fictional, serialised advertising campaign where in having multiple advertisements, you then, like a typical narrative, set up characters, story, conflict, drama, and you space those ads over a certain duration of time, much like a TV series might be spaced week to week, and thus people become invested in the story, the long-term arc over multiple advertisements. Mm, yeah. It is a same, same but different sort of concept in a way. It's like I think that sort of the less in your face style is I think it's sort of pervading a lot of style of advertising to even like your bus shorter ads are a bit more subtle these days and there might be a bit of a play where you drive past three bus shoulders in a row and each one will have a different picture advertising the same product. It'll be telling a story as you drive down the road and, and that kind of thing I think you see a bit more these days. There was a really cool one when the second train spotting came out where they had each character on a stand of four bus shelters in a row at Taylor Square and each bus stop had Spud and Begbie and Spike. And, you know, oh, so visually you sorry, put together Spud those and portraits and it almost resembles and, that yeah. famous photograph of the four of them standing side by side at the train station in Scotland. Yeah, but it was the four of them as they are now in, in the sequel each one on their own bus shelter, but four in a row. It was yeah. that kind of thing. It's a bit more, it's sort of, I mean, 80% of people probably drive past and don't know who they are and don't care, but people who are, go, oh, that's Trainspotting, that's the guys from Trainspotting. And the target yeah. audience for Trainspotting too would yeah. be the type of audience that would be sophisticated enough to pick up on those nuances because they were already plugged into mm-hmm. Trainspotting, the first film. So yeah. you're trying to basically get them who are the people most likely to go to actually turn up on the first weekend of the film yeah, and screen, they, and, opposed and, to waiting till iTunes. And they put on bus shelters in Darlinghurst in the middle of Sydney. They don't put it on bus shelters in Kalara on the North Shore. Well, as you raise the example of the bus shelter advertising, it's kind of apparent to me that one of the reasons why I think I've really become aware of podcast advertising is because the nature of podcasts is that essentially they're an earworm. They're something that captivates people's senses. And although they can walk the dog go to the gym and do multitasking at the same time, there's a certain intimacy because the people are literally in your ear in those earbuds or over the top with cans with earphones over the top. So there's an intimacy to the voices being 
pinged into your head, which is not what you get with, say, outdoor advertising like movie posters on a bus shelter or watching TV, where the sound image is being projected from further away and there are more distractions around you and you might not be captivated in the same way. Yeah. Whereas when someone's kind of talking to you very intimately, Doco-style format, Mm. which seems very authentic, so it's in a very measured tone, it's the same tone as the podcast, which means it sort of flows more naturally from the regular podcast to the advertising and it's told very sincerely, then you are more trusting of it and thus less inclined to tune out. But if you're passing, say, you know, a really vulgar or aggressive print advertising campaign on the side of a building or in a bus shelter, it's so easy just to turn away. It's one glance to see it and one glance to miss it. And also, I think the benefit of podcasts is that you're often listening with a, a sort of an over-ear headphone or a, a noise-canceling headphone, and that sort of adds to the whole intimacy of the experience. And it's just one person talking to you through your headphones as if you're having this one-way conversation. And when they start reading an ad or, or they play an ad, it's almost like it is- Directed at you. It's directed at you, and it comes sort of, you know, it's approved by the, the podcast presenter, and it's not like- you're watching the news with three million other people and then you just get this barrage of Harvey Norman commercials. You're having this lovely experience where you're getting informed about this subject that you're presumably interested in and then you just get informed about another subject that you may or may not be interested in being an ad. And they tried doing that with old school advertising before, well, in Australia anyway, media laws made it less restrictive that radio announcers, DJs, usually old white men, couldn't read out advertorials for products without disclosing beforehand that was an ad. That they were a paid sponsor, yeah. Yeah, because before regulations, they would basically flow from a rant or commentary about subject A to seamlessly segue- Political correctness. Into, seamlessly segue into this advertising spill for a cleaning fluid or something for carpets. And- Dentures. <laughs> for dentures. But they're always reading out- Something and they try to add inflections and so on to make it sound more dynamic. Yeah. But you always sensed after about 30 seconds that they were reading something out. They weren't talking off the cuff with an opinion. Whereas with this doco advertising, it's edited, they've added music, they kind of intercut interviews and so on. It's clearly constructed, but it's constructed in a doco format and people are generally trusting of documentaries as a genre, which is the truth. It's authentic. But with those guys, it was actually even more disgraceful. They would go you mean to the old radio announcers. Yeah, they would go to a commercial break and play two obvious commercials, and then they'd come back on and read a commercial in the middle of the commercial break. And you were like, "Is this part? Oh, we're back on with insert disgusting old white conservative shock shock here." Yeah, but they would be ready in commercial in the middle of the commercial break, I and mean, when you'd hear their voice, and you'd think, "Oh, the radio show's back on." And I was like, "Hang on, this is an ad. There's a radio show," and then. No sooner would they be back, but then they'd be playing another ad and then they come back again. It's like, hang on, is the show back on now or are they reading another ad? That was the way they used to do it, which is even even worse in a way. And that's what also, I guess, happens next with general audio advertising is that with podcasts, there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, like there are hundreds of thousands of YouTube channels. So you have very niche content for niche demographics, whereas back in the day with those old white conservative male shock shocks you mentioned there were fewer radio stations so it was basically machine gun style social commentary and Mm. machine gun style advertising Mm. where you were trying to convert preach to a 
pretty large spectrum of potential listeners. So the advertising, therefore, always felt quite generic. Whereas with podcasting, for example, you can have tailored advertising to a very special niche like film critics reviewing just anime streaming on demand programs or something like that. And therefore, any advertising is probably innately going to be reasonably interesting to the potential audience because it's probably going to be something like that that particular demographic is naturally interested in, opposed to, I guess, broadcasting in the very definition of its name is broad. It covers a wide variety of of people. For some reason, a lot of the podcasts I listen to, the advertising is about products you can buy online that you wouldn't ordinarily buy online. Like um, the Dollar Shave Club where you can get like yep. shaving blades for a dollar. Tuxedos. Those mattresses. Yep. That get delivered mattresses, to you. And you can tuxedos. Send them back. Yep. Made to measure shirts. Toothbrushes. Yep. Those food delivery services where they deliver you the menu yep. and the food. Blue something. Blue apron. Blue apron. Yep. <laughs> and the fresh one, something we fresh. Must have- Go we fresh. Must, we must listen to the same podcast. Yeah. There's also another brand. Here we are doing, but ironically, why, but why, free advertising. But why are they them. all the same? Why do they I s- think it's because these particular companies, they're new companies, they're startups that have been born in the era of, let's call it new media, like podcasting mm. and YouTube. So they've never been able to afford advertising through newspapers or old school print publications like magazines or through expensive, you know, I guess take the extreme. Super Bowl advertising. Mm. So being a small startup, they then have to be really selective, like a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer, mm. and tailor their advertising to these smaller markets. Let's face it, most podcasters, including us, aren't doing it for the money. So therefore, any money that they get is cream, right? So, so essentially- yeah, you'll take anything. So yeah, it'll be like, take anything. Yeah, any little startup selling their- $2 shavers online. Yeah. 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 So it's always a case of money's always, I guess, more or less, depending on the perspective where you come from. So if you are, you know how, for example, we're kind of deviating slightly here, but the price of journalism has gone down because if you were a freelance journalist, you used to get paid a certain amount per word, right? But then what happened is there was a rise of bloggers and they were writing reviews of restaurants, of movies, et cetera, for right. free. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So essentially, when they were offered like one cent per word, they thought, well, hang on, that's one cent per word more than I'm getting now, which is zero. I'd be writing this shit anyway. Yeah. And then the- I might as well get paid for it. Totally. An experienced journalist were getting paid, let's say, 10 cents or a dollar per word. Hmm. So suddenly, they're competing with all of those people doing it for almost free. Hmm. And the people who are doing it for almost free, like one cent per word or 10 cents per word, for them, it's like, well, they still their day jobs. Mm. They're always yep. doing this on the side anyway. Yep. Now they're just getting a bit of extra pocket money on the side. Yeah. And thus you get essentially one of the many factors contributing to the erosion of old school print journalism. Yeah. So in relation back to advertising, what happens next is I think the trick is if you've got these fragmented audiences across computer games, podcasts, film, online, streaming, broadcast TV, old school radio, etc. The trick would be just to basically find your demographic, your customer market, and promote your stuff in a similar format to the genre they're consuming Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't feel as invasive because yeah. it's dressed in the same sort of style. As long as you don't go too try hard, which I think is where a lot of advertising falls down because they try too hard. Oh yeah. And oh, so and so 
a lot of advertising, for example, these ones that we've been talking about, they do it in a documentary style, which is cool and it's it's interesting and it's in a way it's innovative. In a way, it's a style that we've discussed, but they try and latch on to podcasts or, or whatever's cool, and they but they go too far. So they'll try and latch on to the the fixed speed bicycle riding, urban horned rim glasses wearing, bearded coffee drinking, iMac. Book air holding using person with the rolled up jeans. Hang on, I'll stop you just and there. The leather, you basically the describing. <laughs> Am I describing you? No, you're describing a hipster. You could have just said hipster. You basically chose, no, but one thousand different characteristics. No, but see, I, I didn't want to use the word hipster because I think what I described is what is not what a hipster is or was. It's what it's become for advertising. So I think. Ah, uh, ab- so you mean there's genuine hipster, and then there's the appropriation of hipster. Yes. By marketers. Yes. And so what- Can you describe the difference to me? I think what you see is a hipster now is a bastardized advertising interpretation of what they think a hipster is. I think an original hipster would be, you would see that they're a bit more grungy, a bit more grainy than the preppy hipster looking person who probably drives a Mini Cooper on the weekends, but rides his fixed speed bike to the local cafe to- put up his blog post on his iMac book Air all day drinking turmeric lattes, which is what they want you to think that he actually does. But what is the real version of that? I'm not actually the real version. I think the real version of that is probably similar to the guy who made this beer that you and I are drinking tonight in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a guy who's probably got a few tats. He might have a beard. He might roll up his jeans above his blundstones, but he probably doesn't ride a fixed speed bike. He probably drives a Subaru. He's got a couple of kids in the back, you know, and I think – you know, he might live in Tasmania. He's not the sort of Darlinghurst dwelling preppy kind of hipster guy who the look is not so affected. You know what I mean? It's not like every piece of what he's wearing has been so meticulously put together to appear a certain way. It's not thrown together. And you're sure he's conscious of what he looks like and he likes the way he looks and he, he gets the tattoos he gets. I'm sorry. I'm sure there are female hipsters, but I think, you know, do you know what I mean? I think, by the way, in relation to female hipsters, I always think of rockabilly Mm. chick look. Mm. Is that the same? Like the rockabilly rockabilly hipsters? I think rockabilly is the same thing. It does all come out of that, but it's a kind. I think their apartment would be minimalist and it would be like up a little green pot plants in the corner, very white with some nice pale wood, fixed speed bike painted a neutral colour parked above the stairwell, probably doesn't have a TV in it, but you know what I mean. There's that whole sort of, I want to say, birchwood kind of feel to it all or sort of, but getting back to my point. There is the danger with advertising of trying to latch onto something and like just flogging it to the nth degree so that it is no longer cool and people can see right through it and just go, you are trying to latch on the latest trend and be something that you're not. Isn't that since the dawn of time, the nature of advertising, that they appropriate a trend, they amplify the trend, they then go through a phase of possibly parroting the trend and then they kill the trend. Yep. Then the trendsetters in the first place start a new trend. Start a new trend, and so the cycle of life continues with but marketers. The and problem, the problem is the a lot of advertising gets it on the on the trend stage and keeps trying to continue something that's no longer a trend. So it looks like around the streets of Sydney and Australia in general, it appears that hipsters are still going strong. Is that the case, or am I just seeing? Affected tryhard hipsters around me. Maybe you hang out in different areas to me. I don't know. <laughs> well, tell me this. Tell me this. Truth time. You'll be honest here. When you describe the- I wear the- socks with my leather shoes, if that's what you're asking me. No, I was going to say, okay. 
If truth be told, and hipsters hadn't been damaged by marketers, and you didn't didn't have to wear a suit to work, and you could grow a beard out if you wanted to, do you sort of fancy yourself in an alternative timeline as being hipster-like? No, I don't think so. No, not no? really. Not really. I'm too much of a nerd. I'm too geeky. I don't sort of really go the trend route. No, but you're very fashionable. You wear very stylish, fitted clothes. You look after yourself. Your hair is gloriously coiffed. <laughs> and, you know, that's through no no accident. That's for sure. But um, Exactly. <laughs> I don't see myself as sort of getting to that sort of – a lot of it is too much effort. It is too much effort. As I said, wearing your like lace-up leather shoes without socks is just not comfortable. And to do that for fashion is – I can feel a segue coming. No, 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 segue. I was going <laughs> to no. say I was reaching and stretching out my arms because <laughs> no. I was thinking to myself, as you were describing those hipsters before, I realised what I wear on the weekend may <laughs> describe – so let me describe what I wear on the weekend. I know what you wear on the weekend. So it. I wear often red Doc Marlin boots. Corduroy trousers, a T-shirt with a green or red flanny over the top and a woolen merino fine knit hoodie and you, or leather jacket. And what, sort of motor, and what sort of motor transport are we talking? Uh, not some sort of courier bike, are we, by chance? Yeah, you're setting me up here. And that's on a regular just giant push bike, a regular sort of, you know, hybrid bike, nothing fancy. But it's got gears. Just a regular, yeah, got gears, like a $500 it doesn't have like a little, a little leather saddle and a little leather no, handlebars. No, no, no. But I will say this. I also do drive or ride an electric cargo bike to carry two kids in the back, which we take to the markets, to the growers market. <laughs> and I also ride- but That's not hipster. That's just like a young urban family. Do you right. know what I mean? I also ride an electric skateboard. I think in the advertising world of, of your life, you would choose to ride your electric bike- to the growers market on the weekend and buy your organic kale and go home and juice it for the kids. <laughs> but then you would all get into your hybrid Range Rover and drive up to your your house in Bangalore or somewhere behind in the Byron Bay hinterland and <laughs> and you'd be in your hammock and and the kids would be running around the yard with the goats and stuff. As ludicrous as that sounds, I think that is what the advertising would take your life and bastardise it into. Okay, well, that's a good point because I think car advertising, particularly in Australia, which we discussed in a previous podcast- yeah, I do like car is advertising. the nature, Australia being such a car culture, I think some of the pinnacle of advertising, the best advertising, the worst advertising, the best cliches and the best insights can be seen in car advertising in Australia can basically perhaps be a litmus test for how advertisers or marketers bastardise trends or their incorrect analysis of a certain demographic. Mm. So let's go with cars, for example. Like what happens next in relation to how advertisers should realign their marketing campaigns to genuinely reflect demographics for cars? Because you just described an example, a thing involving a soft rotor, a light or compact SUV. Well, the funny thing with car advertising is that it never advertises the product's functionality. So, most other products, you think of any sort of household item and it's like new dishwashing capsules now in easy to use, refillable, blah, 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 or something. Which clean your plates really quickly yeah. and effectively. And it's easy. You don't have to get your hands dirty and you don't have to like peel off the little plastic thing because they're disposable. They dissolve in the wash or, you know, just 
I'm just looking across at, at the dishwasher. But cars never say it's now even more fuel efficient and it's now got 18 airbags instead of 16. You know, it's now new and improved. It's all about an image. All car advertising is selling you a car and it's all targeted at the kind of person who sees himself driving that car. So you're all, selling a lifestyle or an ideal. So you're selling the SUV that you could potentially drive on a dirt road to your mountain slash beach slash farmhouse on the weekend without worrying about getting a puncture because it's slightly got a slightly more ground clearance in a wagon or a hatchback or something. And you like the idea that, yeah, it's potentially I could go off-road, but I probably never will. Or you're selling the urban hot hatch to the young, cool couple nipping around the laneways of Melbourne trying to park outside a new hip little hidden bar slash restaurant or something. Do you know what I mean? Like it's always that or something like the escape on the weekend because you've got the slightly elevated ground clearance of an SUV or something like that or a hotted up utility that's for the tradesman. It's good enough for the working week. What they never show you is the guy at four o'clock on a Friday taking all these ladders and tools and shit out of the back to fit all the family luggage in before they go away to the beach house. But anyway. Totally. It's car advertising is hilarious because it is you're selling the image of what you think people who drive your car want to look like as opposed to what the car actually does. Well, this is the tension I have with electric cars or hybrid cars because I really believe there's incredible value in more sustainable transportation in a small compact factor. And I love everything about what Tesla is and what Elon Musk stands for, which is breaking the mold, doing something different. The car industries around the world are so entrenched with very historical ways of thinking, all using fossil fuels. I love the way that he's basically shaking up the market. But then I also look at it and look at the cost to buy those cars. And this is the really cynical part of me. I then think, well, if I buy a Tesla and essentially pay... 50 to 100% more for the same type of car. And they are outstanding cars and they also, as currently, they accelerate faster and are safer, which was the game changer, I think, for electric cars. Before they were always, you know, slower and so on. But Teslas are actually faster than most sports cars and so on. But I do think to myself, if we forked out extra cash for a Tesla, right, you're buying to an aspiration, a dream, a lifestyle. You're essentially also indirectly promoting environmentalism and making a comment to people. It's not mm. a fuck you comment like yeah. some revhead sports cars are. It's more like a comment to say, I'm looking after the environment. Are you? Yeah. The issue I have, though, is if I did that and we traded it in our car, which is a Hyundai, we're two cars, a Hyundai and a Subaru, and we'll get to that later as to how they define us, those particular models and brands. I do question that if we did buy a Tesla and we sold other cars, it just feels so pointless and I'm almost defeated when I know that somewhere in China or India, as in countries with massive populations, they are burning. They're still going to make that car. Well, not just that, they're burning like tyres. Yeah. There are 50 people in the same space as our house generating more carbon dioxide. It takes a village, Benny. No, no, I agree. And that's the thing is that if you follow that logic down the road, you essentially give up, right? And then you become a nihilist and think, what's the point? But Welcome to my world. (laughs) Why is that? What's the point of anything? Well, there is that point though, isn't it? That you do start wondering, well, I can do this. So, for example, my beloved at the moment, this is like segue upon segue upon segue. (laughs) We're now in sort of that dangerous world of, 
discussing environmental protection, which we both subscribe to, of course, but just the way to do that effectively. My beloved has taken to collecting small plastic scraps and wraps from when you buy, unfortunately, vegetables these days might come on polystyrene with uh, glad wrap, with plastic cling wrap over the top and so on. Mm -hmm. So any soft plastic she's collecting to take to be recycled. Which means now, like, if you tear a small bit of plastic off the top of a breakfast cereal bag, that goes into this other bag and you take all those. You can recycle that? Yeah, you can. And that's great. That's great. However, if you've seen recent documentaries about recycling in Australia, unfortunately, half of the cans, bottles Mm. and plastic bags, which people very authentically do want to have recycled, Mm. are just dumped because it's actually so expensive to recycle and it's much cheaper to buy cans and glasses from China mm. where it costs zip to produce. Yeah. And then it's like, well, okay, we're all doing these gestures of trying to not just protect but also- I think most people authentically, genuinely, will put their recycling in the yellow bin and their, and their rubbish in the red bin and, and their garden clippings in the green bin and they'll try, but we're not informed that by putting one coffee cup that's not recyclable in with your recycling means that the whole thing is the whole truckload is a waste of time. Like no one's actually ever told that. So people just blindly do it and then some idiot will walk along and go, oh, there's a bin, I'll put my dog bag, dog shit in there. That's another podcast topic. In We've the, already done that one. In the, oh, have we? Don't get me started. In the recycling bin. And then yeah, you know, that whole truckload of recyclables is contaminated and they can't be asked to re-sorting it out because it's too expensive, as you say. And then I go, that's straight to landfill. I agree. I think people are willing to do it to a point, but then, as you were saying, like it is more of a gesture and it's more of a, at least I can sleep at night knowing I've tried. And So what happens next? It might all be pointless. Once you alert people to the fact that so much of our recycling is being dumped in massive rubbish tips, how do you then re-motivate people to continue recycling? Or how do you somehow call into account all of this recycling being dumped? to actually ensure that authentically when people put their cups and glasses and paper in the right recycling bins, there's actually going to be a cradle-to-the-grave recycling of those products. How do we solve that in the next five minutes? I think that what we can do is, speaking before about people not wearing socks with their leather shoes, I think all those women who go to great pains to wear their jackets over their shoulders and not put what? Their, <laughs> and not put What's their, the correlation with recycling? Hang on, hang on, I'll get there. <laughs> it's a long run up. They're so keen to pull the jacket over their shoulders, but they are so reticent to place their arms through the sleeves for which they were intended to keep the jacket on their body, their body warm, keep the jacket in place, functional. They would rather walk along with it draped over them like a like some sort of shawl or cape and have to clutch their handbag and phone and, and coffee cup and their jacket to stop it falling off them in the high high winds. I think if we could get all those women who do that on a regular basis to purchase jackets that don't have arms, so all the arms of fabric that we would otherwise have been produced to be sewn onto jackets, the money and the environmental savings alone from that, I think, will easily pay for all the um, all the messed up recycling <laughs> loads. Listeners, if anyone is familiar with the Australian red nut cricketer Craig McDermott, this is the longest run-up to a conversation of all time because I am struggling to see a correlation between the sleeveless jacket 
and solving the dilemmas of Australian recycling. There will come a time where arms-on jackets won't be required and we'll be making much smaller jackets with much less, <laughs> much less material. Well, sorry, just by the way, any jacket without arms that's slung over the shoulders, isn't that a cape? So what you're suggesting so is that buy more- share, buy shares in capes, in cape manufacturers is what I'm saying. merino capes. It's going to take off. Okay. Well, we are in the era of superheroes, so- Exactly. There's an opportunity here to try and morph geek culture. Capes with- and shawls. Jackets will be redundant. The environmental savings of not having to sew arms on jackets will far outweigh the environmental costs caused by contaminated recycling loads. Look, I can't say- That's the premise. I'm not sure if it's scientifically provable, but- Look, speaking of capes, I can't save the environmental troubles of the world right now in the next five minutes, but I will say this. I do find a shawl, by the nature of the name, very unattractive. And I also think that if I saw a woman wearing a shawl, I never think- Ah, oh, that's sexy. What if it's a shawl that is held in place by a, a brooch? No, the word brooch just gives me awful flashbacks to my grandmother. Like a brooch, by definition, is one of those things which is usually quite heavily set. It's usually a very tarnished metal that they use silver on to try and clean every three months. It's probably the natural progression of the true authentic hipster, though, when you think about it. Oh, you know what? Brooches, shawls, and kilts. Yeah. That's think, the think evolution of the hipster. And capes. I think we're on to something. Right. All right. Okay, mate. We haven't solved what happens next with environmentalism. We partially solved how advertisers can market more effectively oh, to target demographics. I think we nailed that one. And we took 40 different segues, which led to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the same next week. <laughs> this is for the show about segues to segues to segues. We should call this show What Segways Next. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I like that. That could be season two. Yeah, okay. Mm. All right, mate. It's been a pleasure as always. You can find me. My username is Ben Phelps on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Patreon. Good night. See you, mate. Bye.